Oh, ladies and gentlemen, how that month went by like an absolute dream. It's done, chilling done, and now we're back on it. In the words of public enemies, Chuck D, for the first time in 2024, breathe a noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope all is well. Hope all is best. Hope you had a great end to your 2023 and a good few days into your 2024. I did leave you with some pods to step to, a couple of 30 questions, and in the midst of that, an interview that didn't actually feature me for the first time ever. Shout out to Brandon Hill once again for hosting that one uh, with Anthony Feinstein. One of the most timely interviews you will ever hear uh, in in podcast history. Let's just say that. Yeah, let's, let's be very let's be very down to the neat green on that one. <laughs> oh, but we're back. We're back. And we're doing carrying on. Just continuing on. That's what life is. Just continuing on, man. Uh, I've done a lot of reflection, as as you can imagine, during the month of December. Personally, outlook towards the world, worldview, all that kind of stuff. And uh, here we are, continuing on. Episode 257. Going to approach 300 sometime this year, I think. Yeah, 300. Yeah, definitely. If I'm going to do a few interviews here and there. We will, we will see on that front, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident we'll hit 300 sometime this year, so that's going to be fun, look forward to that, don't know, I'm not going to do anything for it, but, <laughs> uh, but maybe I will, too nice, we'll see, we'll see if I have the stomach to, I don't know, do something of some nature, who knows, but anyway, uh, but yeah man, we continue on, I have just been obviously doing the end of year list as I do in the month of December, very enjoyable experience. Um, I think the one thing I'm gonna aim to do, I don't set goals or anything like that. I find that a bit just pointless in on in all honesty. Like if I'm gonna do something, do it in present. You know, don't just wait till New Year's in order to do it. I, I just there's just no time like the present kind of thing, right? Um, but yeah, you know, if I if I did set a quote unquote goal. It'd be to just to listen to less music and instead um, consume more films, consume more TV shows that I want to watch. And, um, you know, there's plenty that I want to watch. There's a few that I've had uh, from last year that I've moved on to this year. I've already listed them down. So I'm going to hopefully give those a spin at some point. And, um, yeah, just have a more balanced diet of what what art I consume because, you know, I consume art pretty much constantly um if I, the only time i'm not is don't know if you want to consider youtube shit art but um you know that's the that's kind of the other thing and obviously podcasts as well um i've kind of i think cut down a little bit on pods um there's plenty of them that i want to spin and just haven't really had the mindset to do so um i'm like halfway through one particular thing and 
there's like a X-Men one that I really want to get into, but it's just, it's every episode is like two hours long, <laughs> so and if I don't really, and it's cool getting into, you know, X-Men lore, because I find that world so fascinating, um, but you know, the next episode is literally my favourite out of the bunch, which is Storm, shout out to Aurora, Aurora Monroe, and um, I haven't spun that yet, and if I if I'm not gonna have the time if I'm not giving myself the time to spin that one then what am I gonna do for the rest of it? <laughs> honestly, uh, but we'll get to that we'll get to that audiobooks ton of audiobooks I need to get through I've cut off my um Audible subscription for now um, because there's just so many that I have already and I haven't spun um, so I'm trying to you know get through those and um, yeah this is all this is all I guess in the effort of the overall goal to you know, be be more purposeful with my time. Um, you know, I've been trying to do that for the past, let's just say, ten years, right? And uh, there's still more to do. There's still more I can get out of my time. Um, part of that is ditching Twitter. I obviously said that last uh, last year on the last episode, um, for a few episodes um, during <laughs> during the span of last year, and uh, I did it. I deleted it off my phone. I haven't deleted my accounts or anything. Um, I'm still using my fifth element, uh, Twitter because I just feel, you know, that's a healthy compromise, but I don't have it on my phone. Um, so the only time I'm going to be posting on there is probably just for the podcast, if anything. And, um, I'm not going to do 5e track of the day anymore because don't really see the point anymore in doing it. Um, and you know, I don't go on my laptop you know, until like the afternoon most days, so it's kind of pointless, I feel, um, so yeah, um, I'm going to use the 5e Twitter, still going to put in the full description, I mean, it's the same handle for both that and IG, so, you know, regardless, you're good, uh, regardless of where you're at, um, but yeah, I'm not going to use my personal anymore, um, and yeah, I have to lead off my phone, and, uh, even, even, even the past couple of days of doing that obviously i'm recording on the 2nd of january and this is dropping on the 3rd what's good wednesdays is back ladies and gentlemen love to see it um it's something that is really taking getting used to because there's a lot of times where i just hop on my phone refresh twitter quite quick and that's and you know just then that's it like i did you spend a couple of minutes just milling about seeing what's happening nothing's happening all right cool back to what i was doing and now it's just like on my phone, oh wait, it's not there anymore. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh shit, what do I do for the next couple of minutes for procrastination, right? And it's, um, yeah, so it's taking some getting used to. And we'll see how I can fill that time up because obviously that's a, that's, that's a bunch of time right there, you know, for me going on Twitter, being in group chats or just, um, you know, trying to actually have it fucking load. Um, that's a lot of time. Um, I'm recouping uh, for this year and beyond. So going to have to figure out on that front. So yeah, man, that's 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 all I'm trying to do. You know, I'm just trying to use my time as best as possible with what I feel is best, and uh, that's all I can do. So, with that said, we have a show to get to, don't we? So we have uh, two two life, two histories to get the episode to get the episode and to get this year off started right. I feel so. With that said, as always, formalities before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes. Um, State of the Union, uh, State of the Hip Hop Union address is dropping um, the on Thursday. Um, so if you want to hit that fifth element medium, 
um, for that day. It's going to drop at 1 p.m. GMT if you really want to be that specific about it. Um, so yeah, please give that a spin. It's really quick. It's not long a read. Um, I think probably under five minutes. Doesn't take too long. Um, and it's an important message. I feel to um, you know, just see the state of hip hop union. For those that don't know, is basically me dropping a little. You know, just like, quote-unquote, you know, stay the, stay the union address, you know what I mean? How they do in America. Um, or how how do UK people do it? Um, UK politicians do it. I guess the budget, because that matters, I guess. Um, but yeah, just that just that little recap and that little just um, reaff- reaffirmation of just where we're at. Um, obviously, last year was um, to do with hip-hop turning 50, and I did 5,000 words on that in, 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 um, in appreciation of that. Um, and that was many chapters long, so, you know, please go give that a spin. I feel that's probably one of the most evergreen pieces I'll ever do. Um, but yeah, this one's very um, specific um, to a particular topic, and again, I feel like it's a important topic. So with that said, it is dropping uh, once again on Thursday, 1pm GMT, on the Fifth Element Medium. It's on the descriptions right there, so go give that a spin if you want to, if you feel inclined to. And obviously my album list, the EP list, and song list that I did in the past couple few, in the past month or so. I listened to over 90 albums, and that's not even counting the EPs, which was also a lot. So, you know, do me a favour, I put in the work, <laughs> give it a spin, and maybe you'll find something. Uh, maybe you'll find your new favourite eyes from there. Um, hopefully. But anyway, with that said, uh, where was I at? Uh, writing, uh, other pods under 5 VPN, obviously in the full show notes, and the music as well. And with that said, let the beat drop for the first time in 2024. Let's get to it. In a week where uh, Maine disqualifies Trump from presidential primary ballots, a 7.6 magnitude earthquake hits Japan, a tsunami warning follows. Uh, junior doctors begin their 144 hour strike, that's the longest in NHS history. Uh, nearly The nearly 200 strong Jeffrey Epstein list drops. Um, I think I was supposed to drop today as I record, so hopefully by tomorrow it actually has dropped. Um, and obviously, lastly, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, one and all. Um, you have a few, you have until the 7th to say your Happy New Year's because after that, it's just get, it just gets corny. That's my rule. Anyway, uh, let's begin. <laughs> uh, let's get, let's kick it off with the UK government because why not? How can I not start the, how can I not start the year by starting the countdown clock to the end of the Tory party? I cannot wait. I don't know when it's going to be sometime this year but i hope it's fucking soon and i hope it's a sunny day as it happens because i want to go in there with a t-shirt maybe a custom t-shirt saying fuck the tories and then just vote my ass off you know what i mean just just make that statement love the love the oh love that image in my head glorious image but let's talk about one particular thing one particular topic that they have left um to left to fester um within our society and that is hunger and malnutrition it is a genuine crisis among the many other crises that we have in this country, and it's uh, by design. I feel, I believe, that's my, you know, that's that's my opinion. Um, but anyway, 
So this article is an opinion piece by Michael Marmot, um, who is Professor of Epidemiology at the UCL, University College London, um, and also Director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity and past President of the World Medical Association. So I feel like he's a little bit qualified to do a piece on this. Um, it's via The Guardian and it's called Britain's Hunger and Malnutrition Crisis Could Be e- Easily Resolved Yet politician, Politicians Choose Not To. Because of course they don't. This is it. This is this is the this is the thing that I kind of the one big thing that I um, not realized obviously because I knew this before, but just an affirmation. You know, I feel like it's always worth being affirmed on this on this front. The politicians know better. Um, they do. Don't act like they're stupid. Don't. They are not stupid. They everything they do is for a reason okay if they don't if they don't support a gaza ceasefire you ask yourself why don't they support a gaza ceasefire because there is always a reason or reasons to not do so and it's the same with this hunger and malnutrition crisis that we have in the uk it's the same with homelessness that is happening in the uk a lot of these things are easily preventable but they decide not to do it because a they know better and b choose not to so let's jump right into this what causes a famine? It isn't a lack of food, nor does lack of food cause the kind of food insecurity, just short of a famine, that Britain is facing. In analyses of specific famines, the economist and philosopher Amartya Sen showed the social organisation and lack of and a lack of access for food to food for socially socially deprived people were the real causes of starvation. As twenty twenty three ends. Britain may not be facing a famine, as people are in northeastern Nigeria, South Sudan, Yemen or Somalia, but that is a low bar. The UK's current levels of food insecurity will damage physical and mental health and increase health inequalities for years to come. The Food Foundation tracks moderate or severe food insecurity in the UK, which is defined as how many people in the past month had smaller meals or skipped meals, had been hungry but not eaten, or had not eaten for a whole day each because of lack of access or inability to afford food. In June 2023, the latest tracker, 9 million adults in the UK, 17% of households, that's 1-7%, experienced moderate or severe food insecurity, a massive rise from 7.3 in June 2021. Nearly a quarter of households with children experienced food insecurity. How will this widespread food poverty affect people's health? Recent research has shown an alarming increase in admissions to hospital resulting from deficient intakes of micronutrients, and whereas lack of money among individuals or groups may lead to starvation in countries threatened by famine, moderate or severe food insecurity in Britain is associated with obesity. There is now a f- there is now fairly general agreement that a Mediterranean-style diet rich in fruits and vegetables, olive oil, seeds and nuts, with modest intake of fish, meat and dairy, is good for health. But as is now well-recognised, energy-dense food, high in fat, sugar and salt, is cheaper. The inevitable result is that inequalities in childhood obesity are increasing. Obesity is linked to cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease and arthritis. Crucially, food insecurity is also linked to more general economic insecurity. There is an important debate going on between those in government who think the way to combat obesity is information about healthy eating. 
and those who want more activist uh, approaches, such as restricting promotions of cheap calorie-dense foods and advertising aimed at children. But fundamentally, people aren't eating healthily, in part because they cannot afford healthy food. UNICEF's latest report card, which examined uh, changes in relative child poverty between 2012 and 2021, found that the UK was the worst performer among 39 high-income countries. Our rates of relative child poverty had increased increased by nearly 20%. The government likes to claim that it has reduced uh, absolute child poverty. It should be careful in making such claims. A recent report from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation defined destitution as doing without two or more of housing, light, heat, food, appropriate clothing, or toiletries. In 2022, 1 million children in the UK were in a state of destitution, 2.9 times the level 5 years earlier. Among adults, 2.8 million were in destitution because of inability to afford these six basics. Such destitution will damage physical health, not only because of food insecurity, but because poor quality housing and cold homes are also potent contributors. Such insecurity will also damage the mental health of adults and children. UNICEF report shows clearly that the more time children spend in poverty, the more likely they are to experience depression as teenagers, as well as having increased risk of obesity. Returning to Amartya's Amartya Sen's diagnosis of famines, the UK has the resources to provide all six of the basics that would eradicate destitution. We don't do it. It means that large proportions of the population lack the basic necessities of life and experience the profound insecurity excuse me, that leaves in its wake. It is hard to see this as anything other than a fundamental catastrophic failure. And that is it. That's the arc right there. In its full... In its full um, this, is, this is kind of just one of those stories that, um, again, kind of just reaffirms where I sit when it comes to, you know, the UK government, right? Plenty of issues happening. Do they do anything about it? No. But, they, you know, they, they figure out to find, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds to send a minute amount of people to Rwanda. They, you know, use even more money on that front to actually make it happen, even though a bunch of people, you know, disagree with the whole plan and think, you know, and... Uh, or was it the International Fucking Court of Justice or some shit? It was like, you know, this is bad, don't do that. Um, and, you know, we're going to pull ourselves out of any legal, quote-unquote, red tape um, in order to do so. We focus on that so fucking highly, but then again, millions of people in destitution in this country, and it could easily be re- resolved. It, it makes me... And, it, and this all connects, obviously. It all connects. Um, you know, I I live in a cold house. I don't, um, we don't put heating on, um, just for, you know, sake of saving. Um, am I in destitution? No, I've got layers, I'm good, I mean, I'm currently wearing two, I should probably have, I should probably put at least one more on right now, um, but yeah, you know, I'm okay, I, you know, I sleep well, um, I have a, uh, one of those, um, you know, just under, under the sheets, kind of, uh, uh, heating, uh, yeah, just under the bed heating kind of thing, right? I'll just put a little, there's like a little long pad in the middle of my bed and, you know, heats my bed up nice. I go in there, get warm, it's nice, feels good. That's a privilege, right? Um, even though my house is cold, 
is what it is. Like I can I confirm that. Um, what I can't confirm is not eating for a day. Um, I've never done that in my life, and I don't want to. That's that's not a thing that should happen to anybody. And this is the thing. This is the thing that people don't realize when it comes to these things. These are these are moral failures. These are ethical failures. Um, on top of just the fact that people aren't living the lives they want to live. And again, you know, this is a, this is a not a comparison game. There are worse people off in the world, of course, but to have people living in a country where you know it's supposed to be quote unquote first world, but they're living in destitution doesn't make sense to me. That's a moral failure. They see that and they go, oh, actually, we actually um, removed child poverty, um, eradicated it, so you know we're good. No, no, you just you just decided to see f- see certain facts and pick those and say, yeah, no, that's good. We're good. Look at that. We're we're bossing it right now. We are bossing it. And then meanwhile, people, you know, two million people are saying they're destitute. No, no, no. You guys ain't destitute. It's it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry. You guys ain't destitute. And if you are, we're sorry about it, but then, you know, just keep moving on. Anyway, you see where I'm going with this. Fuck this government and uh, fuck subsequent governments because um, I feel like this ain't going to be rectified. Um, because, ironically, all of this is connected. When you have people that are unhealthy, they need hospital, and then there's no hospital because NHS is getting gutted day by day. Um, it has been, has been, and has it, uh, and has, has had it applied on it uh, for the past decade um nhs gets weaker and weaker every day um due to the government and people suffer because of that the junior doctors going on strike fine that's cool albeit go on strike go for it do you um junior doctors are mistreated that's fine they need more cash that's fine i get it um and (laughs) a part of that is people suffering um but that's the collective that's a collective effort that we need to put on that when someone is when someone is suffering the government as you know we collectively quote unquote voted for right I don't know who you who you lot voted for but um I didn't vote for these lot but um yeah you know you guys voted for this and now they're doing what they feel um will labor be different who fuck knows probably not um, I call him Tory Light at this point. I don't really call him, even call him Labour. I just call him Tory Light because they act like it. Um, if they want to be like that, that's fine. Won't vote for them. <laughs> that's fine. That's just me. That's just me, obviously. I'm not saying that you should do that um, if you live in the UK. But, you know. Anyway, let's move on. Let's hop into history, and uh, this one is an f- interesting story. Actually, I just um, saw this, gave it you know, a quick read of the first few paragraphs, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting," um, because it's just one of those things I feel like, uh, obviously, don't get taught, <laughs> and you just look, you just find the kind, just kind of shit yourself. Um, so, yes, this is a nice little storytelling thing. Um, it's via the conversation written by Chris S. Duval, who is a professor of, professor of geography in the University of New Mexico. And uh, it's called An African History of Cannabis Offers Fascinating and Heartbreaking Insights and Expert Explains. And um, this is, I think, applicable to a lot of things because I feel as the years go by, cannabis will become more 
um, accepted um, as you know my mother's generation goes down the f- goes goes down in age. Um, wow, didn't, didn't mean to say that so morbidly, but you know what I meant. Um, go up in age, <laughs> goes down, uh, goes up in age, and obviously as my generation becomes you know more of the status quo, um, I feel like a majority of us are more accepting of what cannabis is and don't see it as just like marijuana these people get high you know they see it and obviously it's not just it's not just to smoke by the way you know i don't know if you guys knew that but it's not you don't have to smoke it you can use it for other things anyway my point is i feel like this is an important story an important history to know because you know it's going to be used at some point. It's going to be embraced by a wide populace um, in this country and across the world. If it hasn't already, it will be at some point. I guarantee you that. So why not learn history now? Let's get into it. When I tell people that I research cannabis, I sometimes receive a furtive gesture that implies and presumes we're both stoners, as if two members of a secret society have met. Other times I receive looks of concern. You don't want to be known as the guy who studies marijuana, a professional colleague once counselled. Lastly, some respond with blank stares. Why do academics spend time on such frivolous topics? I've learned that all these attitudes reflect ignorance about the plant, which few people have learned about except through popular media excuse me, or their own experiences with it. I study cannabis, but I'm more broadly interested in how people and plants interact. I've studied plants from perspectives ranging between ecology and cultural history, including obscure plants and more widely known ones such as the African baobab. Cannabis is in another category. Being one of the world's most famous yet widespread plants, it is one for which people most commonly question my research motivations. Cannabis has a truly global history associated with a wide range of uses and meanings. The plant evolved in Central Asia millions of years ago. Across Eurasia, humans began using cannabis seeds and fibre more than 12,000 years ago. And by 5,000 years ago, people in South Asia had learned to use cannabis as an edible drug. It arrived in East Africa over 1,000 years ago. Cannabis has been uh, under global prohibition for, more, for most of the last century, which has stunned, uh, stunted understanding of the people-plant relationship. Africa, Africans and people of the African diaspora have had crucial roles in the plant's history that are mostly forgotten. I want people to learn about cannabis history for four reasons. First, understanding its historical uses can help identify potential new uses. Second, understanding why people have value cannabis can improve uh, how current societies manage it. Third, understanding how people have used cannabis illuminates African influences on global culture. Finally, understanding how people are profiting from cannabis exposes inequities within the global economy. So, first one is medical potential. The African history of cannabis highlights its medicinal potential, a topic of growing interest. Advocates of medical uh, medical cannabis often justify their interest by telling tales of the plant's past. Yet, the tales they tell, tales they tell, notably medical journals, have been problematic. They are only about social elites and are mostly untrue. The African past is absent from this medical literature, even though historical observers reported how Africans use cannabis in contexts that justify current interest in its medicinal potential. For instance, in the 1840s, a British physician reported that Central African people liberated from slave ships considered the plant drug, quote, a great promoter of exhilaration of spirits and a sovereign remedy against all complaints, unquote. 
These were emaciated, I think that's how I say it, a traumatized survivors. Emaciated? Yeah, I think that's the word. The experience justifies exploring cannabis as a potential treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and other conditions. We need to understand why people value cannabis to identify and address social processes that may produce drug use. Africans have valued cannabis for centuries. Though it's difficult to know all the uses it had, because most weren't documented. Despite its limits, the historical cl- record clearly shows that people use cannabis as a stimulant and painkiller in association with hard labour. Many European travellers observed their porters smoking cannabis before setting off each day. A Portuguese in Angola uh, stated that the porters, quote, affirmed that it wakes them up and warms their bodies so that they are ready to start up with alacrity, unquote. Because labourers valued cannabis, many overseers did it too. Uh, did too. Cannabis drug use remains associated with social marginalisation in context from Morocco to Nigeria. The Pan African experience suggests its u- experience suggests using it is uh, not a moral failing of users, but is at least in part symptomatic of exploitation and inequity. I also study cannabis to understand how African knowledge has shaped global culture. Cannabis travelled as an element of exploitative labour relationships that carried people around the world, including chattel slavery, indentured service and wage slavery. There is strong evidence that psychoactive cannabis crossed the Atlantic with Africans. Oral histories from Brazil, Jamaica, Liberia and Sierra Leone tell that enslaved Central Africans carried cannabis. In 1840s, Gabon, a French-American traveller, observed a man, quote, carefully preserving seeds, intending to plant them in the country to which he should be sold, unquote. The people who transported seeds shaped our modern language. Around the Atlantic, many terms for cannabis trace to Central Africa, including the global word marijuana, derived from Kimbundu Mariamba. Outstanding. Um, There's actually a nice little graph here um little like map of cannabis words derived from african language um so yeah there's there's, there's a wow it's actually oh, whoa, whoa, wait, hang on let me I, I need to just let that wash over me right quick it's actually really fascinating um okay cool that's really good get into that that's kind of kind of fun to look at further the most common uh, modern use of cannabis as a smoke drug was an african innovation prehistoric people in eastern africa invented smoking pipes uh, smoking pipes, you know, pipes that you smoke. Um, after the plant arrived from South Asia, Eastern Africans uh, discovered that smoking was more a more efficient way to consume cannabis compared with edible forms of the drug, notably all water pipes, hookahs, bongs, shishas, and so on, trace ultimately to African precedents. Finally, understanding the plant's African past illuminates inequities within global economy. Drugs policy, drug policy reforms worldwide have opened lucrative legal markets for cannabis. Businesses are feverishly competing for wealth, and governments are eagerly seeking new revenue sources. The rush to profit has enabled businesses from wealthy countries to gain power in poorer countries. Most African countries that have enacted drug policy reforms, notable exceptions being South Africa and Morocco, did so only after foreign businesses paid for cannabis farming licenses. These has always been possible under existing laws, though the governments have never made them available. These drug policy reforms don't meaningfully extend to citizens of African countries. Licensing fees are either unknown or unaffordable for most citizens of the countries that have allowed commercial farming, including Zimbabwe, Uganda, Lesotho, Malawi, Eswatini, and the Democratic Republic of Congo.
The countries that have allowed licensed production still prohibit traditional cannabis uses. Even as export markets grow, African citizens face criminal consequences for domestic production. Cannabis policy reforms in Africa have mostly benefited investors and consumers in wealthy countries, not Africans. A textbook example of neo-colonialism. Further, profit- further profitable industries in Europe and North America rely on seed taken from Africa, where cannabis genetic diversity is high thanks to farmers' plant breeding skills. Cannabis is the centre of industries that generate billions of dollars annually. Increasing this higher co- this income is legal. History shows that African countries have competitive advantages for cannabis farming. Reforms should enable Africans to enjoy these advantages. Globally, many societies are recognising that, criminal- that criminalising cannabis has produced excuse me, problems and has not eliminated drug use. Some African countries are developing cannabis policy reforms that include decriminalization and degrees of legalization. African and non-African societies must address complex questions in evaluating cannabis policies. In any case, the plant's African, the plant's African past provides insight into both long-term and emerging issues in humanity's interactions with cannabis. This is why I study African cannabis. And... Big ups to <laughs> big ups to Chris Duval, man. That's that's some bullish shit. I really respect that, um, and it's truly just a fascinating history. Um, just just that little bit was fascinating to me, and um, yeah, I didn't realize Africa was so deep in that in in that history. Um, just just right there, I've learned something new. Um, that they have a big part in it, and the fact that they they that Africa is a continent and countries in within that have criminalized it is so fascinating to me and obviously the neocolonialism element is a big part of that and um yeah i just hope that that changes i really do um it's going to be legalized at some point um here in britain i know that for sure um it's just a matter of when um i I just find it a really easy easy thing to do it's just like yeah well you want you want money, don't you? Like it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's silly to me. It's silly to me how they cut this off and criminalize it. It doesn't make sense to me personally. Um, not to be that guy, but alcohol's worse um, in pretty much every way. And that's you know, I can go get a bottle of vodka right now and just down that. So I, I just, I just don't get it. I, I in so many ways, I never get it. But in some ways, on the flip side. I definitely do get it. Snakes in the grass are love. Anyway, let's jump right into the second history topic. Millennials! Because that is getting into history right there. Because we're all, well, I'm the youngest of millennials and I'm nearly turned 30, so majority of millennials are now 30. Um, and that's interesting. That's that's a fascinating thing because obviously, you know, as kids that lived in the 90s and for me more of the 2000s, but, you know, some in the 90s, um, at least four-tenths of the 90s, uh, 40% of the 90s, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting, obviously... Uh, time of the world the 90s and having millennials live through that and then obviously look back at it it's interesting so this is an article by Kat Rosenf- Rosenfield 
by Unheard, and it's called How the 90s Are Haunting Millennials. So I have no idea where she's going to go with this, but let's see where it goes. Oh, God, it mentions friends in, like three times in the first paragraph. <laughs> oh, gosh, okay. <sighs> right. There's a scene in the new apocalypse thriller, uh, Leave the World Behind, in which a 27-year-old character describes the show Friends as, quote, almost nostalgic for a time that never exi- existed, unquote. Her lip curls with contempt as she says it, and not just for the show itself, because her friends was guilty of sending a liar with a shiny, sanitized, non notably non-diverse depiction of life in New York, wasn't it uh, its millennial fan base equally guilty of buying it? When she sneers at friends, she's really sneering at herself for falling for it. Oh, okay, that, that, that came out pretty good. Yeah, anti-friends over here, big ups. In this, she represents an entire generation's is it pension or penchant? Uh, people call penchant for me, and uh, I just I just say penchant. Penchant uh, for repudiating the culture that shaped it. Nostalgia is resentment tinged among millennials, for whom being downtrodden and disenfranchised has become something of a permanent calling card. Five years ago, it was a truth universally acknowledged uh, that we would be the first cohort to do worse economically than our parents. Crushed by unmanageable college debt, unable to buy houses or start families, and burn out by the endless demands of side hustling, millennials were surely the unluckiest generation. The only problem with this universally acknowledged truth is that, actually, it's not true. Hmm, okay, here we go. In fact, in fact that's become uh, inescapable this year. Millennials as a group are not broke. They are, in fact, thriving economically, wrote Jean Twenge, I'm saying that right, uh, in the Atlantic in April. Since the mid-2010s, millennials on the whole have made a breathtaking financial comeback. The data backs this up. Although the wealth gap between rich and poor persists within the millennial generation, and the housing market makes home ownership slightly more challenging than it used to be, all the catastrophizing seems to have been premature. Millennials are doing fine. Okay, carrying on. (laughs) The skepticism has come back in, and yet their image, as uniquely put upon, has proved persistent. Especially among millennials themselves. Once you've entrenched a generational narrative, people will continue to identify with it, irrespective of how things may have evolved. For the same reason that the children of the 60s styled themselves as anti-establishment hippies from the comfort of the corporate offices, millennials have struggled to let go of the, of the sense that there's something uniquely difficult about their lives, even as they cruise comfortably into middle age, buying homes, having kids, accumulating assets. But if we're doing well by every available metric, how can we explain the fact that we feel like such losers? <sighs> I feel like combating a lot of things here, and just <laughs> she's just moving right the fuck on, and it's just like, okay, um, are we cruising comfortably into middle age, buying homes, having kids, accumulating assets? I don't think all of us are. Anyway, continuing on. Enter the successor ideology to the debunked myth of the left-behind millennial. The retrospective problem problematizing of the 90s. This oeuvre of cultural criticism devoted to uncovering the evil subtext in every entertainment property produced before 2005 makes a certain kind of sense if you understand it as a coping mechanism for a generation that views their adult lives with not just disappointment but a sense of betrayal. The expectations were internalized that the world was our oyster, that we would have it all, and which reality has so cruelly failed to meet. Uh, were the products of the 90s par- of a were the products of a 90s paradigm in which millennials were not just avid consumers but guilty participants, victims, and perpetrators alike. 
Hence why, where other generations dabble in more straightforward nostalgia for their formative years, millennials have developed an antagonistic relationship with them, rewriting and reframing it like a therapy patient searching out the hidden darkness in a seemingly happy childhood. That this has happened in tandem with the widespread creep of therapy speak into everyday life is surely not coincidence. Actually, your parents' loving marriage was a sham. Actually, your fun-loving father was an alcoholic man-child. And actually, friends was a cesspit. <laughs> cesspit of racist, sexist, heteronormative bigotry masked as feel-good primetime TV. The Reckoning isn't solely an American phenomenon. The latest season of The Crown which opens with Princess Diana's death in 1997 and doubles as a searing indictment of the tabloid culture of the era, is also a fine example of this sort of meta-commentary. But in the US, exposing the dark underbelly of our youthful obsessions has become a genre unto itself. There's this year's memoir Boom, uh, which in, in which maligned 90s icons have spoken their truth in documentaries and best-selling books. Paris Hilton's memoir of abuse at boarding school for Wayward Youth reveals that her... Uh, Celebutant antics, I guess I say, celebutant antics, uh, and baby voice bimbo persona were the result of hideous trauma. Britney Spears's tell all, uh, The Woman in Me, describes how her apparent career renaissance was actually a puppet show in which she dangled on strings, hel- strings held by a father who managed her life, her finances, her reproductive choices, even the choreography of a Vegas comeback show. Meanwhile, on HBO, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage discovers a sinister valence uh, to the gleeful raunch culture of the Girls Gone Wild era, featuring interviews with the musicians and media figures who were once its vanguard. Now middle-aged and chagrined, they shake their heads in lemon-faced disapproval at the provocations of toxic male pop metal icons like Limp Bizkit, uh, but also at themselves for being complicit. The question hanging in the air is, how did we ever think this was okay? And then there's Monica Lewinsky, who marked the 25th anniversary of the scandal that made her famous with interviews, articles, even a television series, highlighting how her 90s era infamy has transformed to become one of the greatest reputational rehabilitations of all time. In 1998, when the story of her affair with then-President Bill Clinton broke, Lewinsky was a Jezebel, a home wrecker, and a punchline to the worst jokes that the shaming culture of the moment could think of. Now, for exactly the same reason, she's a feminist hero. Toast of the Hollywood elite and NYC social pages alike greeted with a standing ovation when she walks into a room. Okay. This is, this is, this is, I'm, I'm just... I'm just stacking up thoughts as I go through this because it's fascinating. It's a fascinating opinion. I just want to try and get through it just so I can actually, you know, hear it all. But stigma isn't the only thing Lewinsky has shed in the old paradigm. A woman in her early 20s who slept with a married man, even a powerful one, was considered an autonomous character and old enough to know better. In the revised one, she's not just a victim but practically a child. Her shame is gone, but so is her agency, and with it, any sense that she may have had a hand in the current shape of her life. The cultural revisionism, revisionism that refashions the wanton uh, seductress as a hapless innocent speaks to the interplay of millennial childhood nostalgia with the overwhelming sense that we still aren't really adults. The same generation that treats grown-up responsibilities like bill-paying or doing laundry as a sort of LARP, <laughs> quote-unquote, adulting, is also characterised by insistent and continued interest in childish things. YA fantasy, Funko Pop dolls, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe have supplanted the more sophisticated ideas and aesthetics that were once the hallmark of adult taste. Even the most acclaimed millennial creators tend to be backward-looking, 
revisiting, reframing childhood favourites rather than writing something new, fresh, complex, grown up. It was this. It was the approach to art expressed earlier this year by Greta Gerwig, director of Little Women, and Barbie, when she proclaimed that the latter movie was both quote doing the thing and subverting the thing unquote. The thing in question being Barbie's pink-tinted, stereotypical, sexist tropes. But the bigger thing to accept about Barbie is not just that she's sexist, but that she's simple in the way kids' stuff tends to be. Where the irony-tinged approach to millennial nostalgia falls short in not Gerwig's nothing is not in Gerwig's notion of the thing that is at once done and subverted, it's in its failure to comprehend that adulthood means putting aside the toys you used to play with and doing something else. The fact is, despite all the think pieces, reckoning with the, n- the naughtiness of the 90s ultimately doesn't change much. Britney Spears, freshly liberated from her conservatorship, may be understood as a victim to be pitied rather than a spectacle to be gawked at, but that doesn't change the fact that we're all still gawking. Speak for yourself. Monica Lewinsky, no matter how sympathetically she is now received in a discourse chagrined by the Me Too movement, is still only famous for being the owner of a dress covered in presidential semen. That's the way I've worded it. <laughs> and the videos of women being groped and assaulted at nine, Woodstock 99, which were aired to such more indignation in nine, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage, are still dot 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 videos of women being groped. All this revisiting and revising does little, except give us an excuse to relive every titillating tabloid scandal, every salacious moment. The former 90s kids who engage in this mode of cultural critique are like the murderer who gets off on reliving his crime through confession, almost as much as he got off on the killing itself. There's an almost giddy subtext to the whole thing. We were so bad. But of course, we're also better now. We're obsessed with the same scandals, but for more morally superior reasons. This is not. This not only absolves us of our complicity in the raunch mischief, mischief of yore, but also conveniently aligned with the sentiments of the upcoming generation, the Zoomers, who are displacing us as society's youngest adults, whether we want to grow up or not. As the meme goes, how do you do, fellow kids? Maybe if we repudiate our own mispent, misspent youth enough, the Zoomers will let us glom into theirs. They're already wearing our, our, all our old clothes anyway. The alternative, wholly unappealing, would be to abandon the protection that permanent adolescence affords, and with it, the central tenet of millennial identity that we have been and remain uniquely screwed by circumstance. The self-described small bean, who uses quote-unquote adult as a verb, also maintains a teenager's belligerent stance to, uh, toward the world, a conviction that society doesn't understand you, has left you behind. Millennials may not actually be materially worse off, but our expectations still don't line up with reality. We still feel disempowered, disenfranchised, and victimized. The problematizing of everything 90s offers a sort of ab- absolution. The expectations reality gap isn't our fault, but the fault of a toxic culture. And as long as we keep writing bitter think pieces about heteronormative whiteness of everything we used to love growing up, maybe we a- don't actually have to grow up. We don't have to embrace complexity or develop more sophisticated tastes. We don't have to confront the uncomfortable limits of victimhood as a safe haven from responsibility or, for that matter, the uncomfortable truth that Britney's social media output since winning back her independence raises some serious questions about whether she is in fact equipped to manage her own affairs. Like the therapy patient who returns week after week, year after year, to dwell on the childhood traumas that shaped the man he became, we can linger in this metacritical limbo virtually forever. (sighs) 
that's a lot. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a lot, and um, I'm just trying to let that wash over me. This is this is the only issue sometimes when I um, speak when I when I read like something that is just you know in the grand scheme of things short, but is incredibly dense in terms of just what they what they are talking about, you know what I mean, it's just like, okay, do I, is, is, is think piecing friends bad, because I feel like that's, am I missing the point there, is, because that's, that's kind of, not the main thing I take out of it, obviously, that's just one of the many things, but it's just, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what's the, what's the, I mean, okay, uh, oh, the, 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 the the use of adulting and stuff like that is definitely weird. Um, you know, even as I live day to day with my mother and sister, I, you know, feel like, you know, I'm obviously an adult, I'm twenty seven, but I'm also the youngest in the room. And it still it still has that weird sense of, you know, a dynamic that was you know, fine, obviously when I was, you know, maybe 12, right, but not when I'm 27, it doesn't make sense, and, you know, I'm get, I get, I'm involved in adult conversations, right, and that's, that's important, obviously, because I am an adult, but, you know, this, this concept of adulting is just, is so, it is, it is an odd thing, it is an odd concept, just how people are using adult as a verb and stuff like that, and, you know, I know many people that are, you know, doing it, doing the thing, and, you know, they're, they're, they're getting by, and, you know, that's fine, that's good, you know, a lot of the issues in life is just us trying to get by, and, um, you know, I try and live life differently, I don't see, and here's the thing, I don't really see the 90s as that, you know, everything in history is bad, if you want to paint it in that light, you know what I mean, um, chimney sweeps, kids a hundred years ago, you know, that's bad, we can agree that's bad, right, is that think-piecing, you know what I mean, to, oh, children, oh, children under the age of 10, oh, working, oh, such a bad thing, so, yeah, we can think-piece that if we want to, because it's objectively a bad thing, friends as a cultural icon is objectively bad, in my opinion, subjectively bad, because it's not objective if I say it's in my opinion, but you know what I mean, subjectively it's bad, I feel like it's a bad thing, I feel like it's a net negative in the grand scheme of things, it's not how New York was, it's how New York ever was, they just painted it in a very white light, and that's just jarring to me as the years go by, sorry, <laughs> sorry if I feel that way, you know what I mean, it's just, I, yeah, there's just a lot to that, there's a lot to that, I don't think I have time to really break that down, but, um, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting article. I don't f- and I and just so you know, we are worse off. I'm sorry, like we 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 are worse off. It is as a generation, we are worse off. It's not us. It's not me. You know, going woe is me for our generation. You know, if our generation was doing well, I'd say so. But we're not. Which in plenty of metrics, we are not doing well. Um. So and that's due to our previous generations having the power. That is what it is. I feel like you know, if you had people my age in power, it'd be a lot different, but no, we have to have people over the age of 40 every fucking time, every single time, forever, for the rest of time, and have people, you know, 80-odd, not knowing what fucking TikTok is, um, having be, having a place in, like, our, you know, uh, internet affairs committees, or whatever, you know what I mean, just, just 
it's it's dumb. It's dumb. It's stupid to have people. I'm sorry, sorry guys, people over seventy five. You just shouldn't be there. I'm sorry, you shouldn't be in those rooms. Um, you don't have the knowledge. You're not good. You don't care about the knowledge. So why do you care? Um, so yeah, that's just anyway. That's just me. I feel like I'm. I feel like you know we are factually worse off and this and if we find enjoyment in taking the piss out of you know the concept of adulting and you know and memeing everything then is what it is you know that's maybe how that's maybe how we cope these days that just may be the mechanism the meta criticism that may just be how we cope with things by looking back and just going damn childhood was crazy wasn't it you know, it's not ther- it's not like, you know, therapy, it's just, you know, just acknowledging shit, it, I don't know, just weird, just a, we- just a weird article, um, I didn't really, I didn't really get what the overall message was, but, um, yeah, it made me defensive, so, <laughs> objectively, made me defensive, so, I guess it did a job, in that sense. Okay, let's finish up uh, with a, what's it, what's it, a second history, no, second life topic, okay, this one's good, this one, this one's good, and you can understand why I finished it, um, because I feel like this is a good message to just um, give to people as a, you know, if you don't have a New Year's resolution, here is one, stop fucking hating on people, stop going on the internet and just, you know, watching shit that you, of pe- about people you don't like, you know, unless they're, you know, maybe like a good video essay, you know what I mean, just breaking shit down. Um, educational, you know what I mean, going on Twitter to just say, you know, Doja Cat sucks is just, again, this is what I meant at the start of the episode, I I, want to have, make my time purposeful, and hating is not purposeful, consuming shit of people you hate, uh, or you don't like, or you just don't rate, or whatever, is just pointless, I don't follow Drake, okay, I don't care about Drake, <laughs> you know what I mean, I just don't care, there's a time where he's probably gonna get R. Kelly'd when the money dries up, um, but right now, he's on top of the world, that's fine, he can live, um, I'm gonna let him live, I'm not, I don't care, I don't care, I'm spending time focusing on the shit I care about, so this is literally called, Why Do We Keep Tabs On People We Can't Stand, it's by Angel Martinez, uh, freelance journalist, and this is via Vox, so let's jump right in. In the early days of an internet, a hater was the worst thing you could be. Spite and sarcasm had no place in a sea of people who watched videos of babies laughing or tended to their virtual farms. Thankfully, as time passed, we as a society have learned to stop lying to ourselves. No one is ever truly out of sight and out of mind today, which is why we shamelessly send bad posts of people we don't like to our friends or have entire group chats dedicated to gathering receipts. Over 70,000 people have uploaded their confessions on TikTok to the tune of the catchy Haters Anthem, because, as the song itself says, we love the way it feels to be a hater. You too might find yourself looking at social media feeds of people you don't like and getting joy out of that experience. It's a common habit and often harmless way to let off some steam, but continually hate-stalking others' accounts can keep us trapped in a cycle of unproductive negativity. There you go. See? Spitting facts. Look at me. Since prehistoric times, okay, humans have thrived on seeking out and obtaining information about the world around us, especially as it pertains to other people. It doesn't matter whether we love or hate them, these emotions activate some of the same circuits in the brain and consequently release the same rush of rewarding feelings. Often we're drawn to dislike those 
who we feel violate our uh, social norms, like that annoying micro-influencer who overshares every single detail of their deep-seated trauma because we're intrigued by why and how they're able to do what they do. These reasons could be even more complicated and, and varied if we personally know those we keep tabs on. Of course, this kind of social media lurking is completely different from actual behaviours of criminal stalking and acts of hate. There's a serious distinction between quietly sending a friend someone's weird Instagram story and, action, and actual bullying and harassment, which should never, could be, never be condoned. But no matter how harmless this common version of social media stalking could seem, at the onset, it can still be detrimental. When we're feeling particularly down in the dumps, it's hard to see that what we're looking at is just a deluge of highly curated information that may not serve our better interests to engage with. The feeling of social comparison that follows forces us to keep with appearances and overcompensate for what we lack. Despite these real effects, it can be hard to admit there is a problem that's, uh, that needs to be addressed, mostly because of how easy it is to hide. Quote, Think about other behaviours like smoking, drinking alcohol or compulsive shopping. There are often witnesses to this or trail of evidence which makes us feel more accountable to other people, explained Georgia, Georgina, uh, Sturmer. I haven't met a Georgina in a while. There was a Georgina in my uh, high school. I remember her. She was eccentric as hell. But um, yeah, I, I never see a Georgina these days. So that's interesting. Uh, an inter integrative counsellor, there you go, um, who has worked with women struggling with addiction. Another quote. Hate stalking can be done in private without fear of being caught or questioned, making it much easier for us to go down a rabbit hole, unquote. As a result, we tend to go down these spirals alone and leave social media stalking sessions feeling ashamed or embarrassed, wondering how we got so invested in others' digital lives in the first place. It's a complicated behaviour that brings up a lot of conflicting emotions. With that in mind, the names of some of the people uh, interviewed for this article have been changed to protect our identities. Like any other addictive behaviour, hate stalking can be a habit we develop to address unmet needs. Quote, uh, from Sturmer, it's easy to go online uh, in an attempt to tackle underlying feelings of loneliness or boredom. Once we're there, social media contains built-in features that keep us on the hook, unquote. When we acknowledge that our social media lurking can hinder our happiness, it's important to get to the root of this behaviour. Take Annie, who still keeps tabs on former bullies who made her high school life a living hell, quote, I've kept up with their life so long to see if they've peaked in high school. The 29-year-old creative told me in an interview, Sadly, hate stalking has only made me more self-conscious, especially when I see a former bully thriving. I tend to talk to myself from a place of shame whenever I don't achieve something like them. Unquote. Sometimes there can also be an element of seeking karmic justice, of wanting to know whether someone is suffering as punishment for hurting us in the past. Take Rika's former co-worker, who Rika said was so threatened by her that she tried to derail her career. Quote, this person moved to another company and I started hate-stalking to see if she would make something of herself after leaving, the 42-year-old uh, salesperson sh uh, shared. I just didn't want to believe that she could ruin my career and not face any consequences. I'd like to think that the universe is fair, unquote. Coming to terms with our reasons for lurking will require asking, uh, asking and answering some pretty uncomfortable questions. Examples of this include... What are you seeking in this encounter? Are you going to this person's account to torture yourself? Is this a manifestation of feelings of loneliness or anger or envy? Are we, or are we curious what other people are doing without us? Said Jamie Krems, a so social psychologist and professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Consider too, this role social media may have previously played in your relationship with this person. Maybe you are liking or commenting on their posts, or you catch up lunches uh, or birthday parties where features on their feeds a lot. 
These interactions may have brought the distinct kind of validation that serves as online currency, which might be a reason why we keep coming back to some people's accounts. At the end of any relationship, we're often told to unfollow, even block the other person on all social media platforms. But for those who find it hard to cut them off immediately and completely detaching from a stalky, and their daily activity is nonetheless necessary. Lily, a 22-year-old writer, admitted that checking up on her ex-boyfriend and his new partner two years after the breakup just adds salt to the emotional wounds. Quote, Even if the intention behind it was to feel better about myself, it would always make me feel like shit because at the end of the day, I used to be that girl beside him, making plans of growing old together, she said. See, seeing anniversary and milestone posts on her feed from her ex is particularly difficult for her. It would remind me of how things were like when the breakup was still fresh, crying non-stop, screaming my lungs out in pain, and feeling all this anger and frustration and grief, unquote. It's important to track moments when you feel the need to social stalk and assess what factors those instances may have in common. Were you in a specific place that reminded you of them, or hanging out with certain people, or doing a particular activity? Maybe this could be an indicative uh, yeah, indicative of a larger personal issue we all we have. Like in Annie's case, quote, Now I'm trying to see if I'm hate stalking, if my hate stalking is a manifestation of my demand, demand avoidance. If I'm doing this just to ignore what I know I should be doing to make my life better. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Alright, how long have we got it? Um, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's, let's just um, finish off because I've got a few paragraphs left. That's good. Contrary to popular belief, Keeping tabs on social media of the people you don't like isn't always uh, this shameful activity that signals the beginning of a depressive episode or unhealthy obsession. When taken at face value, it's just another means to acquire new knowledge. And if we find exactly what we're looking for, it could significantly improve our outlook. Quote, I found out that my former co-worker didn't get into the company she wanted and was forced into retirement, Rika said. It's amusing to see her trying to convince everyone that she's happy now, uh, happy with how her life looks now, unquote. On other occasions, it can even serve as a means to strengthen or start relationships. Quote, There's a possibility that shared hate might actually bring us together more than shared love. If we both hate the same person, perhaps we have, an underli- have underlying similarities that could make us great cooperators, said Krems. This coalitional hate-stalking can feel good because we're both discovering information and bonding together, which could have great payoffs for our well-being. Unquote. While this may seem like a reach to some, let's face it, no matter how much we claim to have moved on, the right mixture of boredom and curiosity could compel us to check up on a certain person. The schadenfreude that can come with that doesn't mean we're irredeemable or evil human beings. Our feelings towards the events in our lives and the people we meet are valid and varied. As long as our social media check-ins aren't an obsessive, uh, an organised effort to ruin someone else's life or to hurt themselves or hurt ourselves, we don't need to beat ourselves up when we go down the same old spiral. Quote, not liking someone and wishing them ill, should we be doing that? That's a question that depends on our morality, Krem said. But does almost everyone do that? I think the answer is yes. Unquote. And actually, it reminds me of, um, literally, um, this wasn't a reason I hopped off Twitter um, or anything, but there actually was um, someone from my past um, that I just, um, you know, just searched up on Twitter now and again, just to see what they were doing. Um, they didn't tweet much anyway, so it didn't really, it wasn't really, like, that much of a fruitful endeavour. Um, but, you know, it was, it was, it was just interesting just to see them still going, you know, and, um, you know, I cared about them, I still do to an extent, so it's not, it was not a, uh, I ain't, it wasn't from a place of hating, 
um, to be honest, being real with you, wasn't from a place of hating, um, it's just from a place of um, just just wondering, you know, just that boredom and curiosity um, that was mentioned, and um, I think they're doing okay, <laughs> like I said, they don't tweet very much, so, um, you know, this was what it was, and um, now I'm off to, uh, I ain't going to see that shit anymore, so, um, it is what it is, we move on, we keep moving, we keep it moving, and we keep it going, so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, if I give any advice to you for this year, quit hating, simple as, alright, from the Fifth Film Podcast Network. I'm excited to tell you this has been what's good. Your music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for Bitsy's The Track. Thanks to Nappy High, Friend 5 Nappy High for Bitsy's Charismatic for the Interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes as well as the other two. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. You should always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.